This is a story about a dude named Lane. Then one day he went and tried to rent them out, and then he became one of the best of Hey, Simple Passive Castle listeners. Today we are going to be doing an update on what's happening in the lending environment. Going to talk through the key factors of getting the loan, debt to income, credit score, other tips for you guys picking up your primary residence or your remote rental property. Joining me today, Benson Peck. Hey, Lane. How are you? Good. It's always a funny thing in YouTube world or podcast world when everybody says something lame. Oh, I'm welcoming my friend, Benson. And that's a cold word for, yeah, I just met and I barely had a two-minute conversation. But here, I actually know Benson. Um, he's actually a pretty good friend of mine. Him and his wife run their mortgage lending company, Nestmade.com. So Benson and Mimi, they lend out of California, but they can lend out of multiple states. But they're also in the family office, Wahana Group. You guys can learn more about that at com slash journey. It goes in with our whole invest and work with people you trust. I thought it being Benson on who you know, does this for a living break down what's been happening with the lending environment, some of these key items to be on the lookout for if you guys are looking out for your next real estate loan. Generally, before we dive into some of the, the numbers, how is lending today? I know during the pandemic, things were pretty crazy for you guys with refinance. Oh, uh, yeah, back in March to July, there was so much uncertainty last year and a lot of lenders pulled out of lending completely. We see that Debt to income ratio, like being pushed lower and lower, there's margin compression. There's all kinds of things going on in the lending world. I think the biggest thing is the non-QM stuff, like people who, who have less than perfect tax return. They went like they got nowhere to go because they're all gone until most recently. They all trickle back. We have the last couple of months, we signed up with a lot of new lenders that are doing a lot of the, the non-QM stuff. The jumbo loans and non-QM are back, basically. So we're going to be going through the kind of a chart of what are the things you guys need to do to qualify for the best rate. But to outline this for you guys listening in podcast form, we're going to be talking about two things here, right? Owner-occupied properties, your primary residence, dream houses for a lot of you guys, and the non-owner occupied properties. The biggest one that people look at first is to qualify is debt to income ratio. Maybe explain what that is. What is the percentages? Well, there's a lot of talks about what the debt to income ratio needs to be. Before we get into debt to income ratio is debt divided by your total gross income before tax, right? So your debt could be your PITI, principal, interest, tax, and insurance, HOA, mortgage insurance, all added together, plus any of your credit card payments, not balances, payments, your student loan payments, and also your car payment all bunched up together. Let's say it's $5,000 and you and your spouse make $10,000. That's 50% debt to income ratio. Okay. Right now, if you have a great credit score, like 740 or, or higher, you should be able to qualify at 50% debt to income ratio. In some cases where the credit score is lowered or your LTV, your loan to value ratio is higher, meaning you put 5, 10% down, that might get pushed down to 45% or even 43% to get a, a DU approved eligible. 
Now, a lot of people listening are engineers. You are an ex-engineer yourself too. Do you see any like mistakes like the weekend spreadsheet junkie that makes their own debt to income calculations and then you guys run it? Are there any kind of common mistakes you see the folks at home making when they're calculating this stuff and they get all upset? And you're, they're like, I'm 51%, right? <laughs> How'd you get 47%? Especially the ones who already own one or two investment property. A lot of people think that they can just use a gross rental income. A lot of times, really, if you own a property for a year or two, we actually go off of your Schedule E and there's a very specific calculation. It's really not that hard. It's your net income. You add back your taxes, insurance, and mortgage interest, and that's your total gross income. And then you subtract your actual expenses. So super easy, but people, it's actually even on the Fannie Mae website, uh, guidelines. They'll teach you how to do it. If, if not, you guys can reach out to me. I'll, I'll let you know how to make that work. And the second thing is a lot of people think that uh, student loans, just because it's zero payment, a lot of people are on deferment or forbearance on their student loan. We still have to assume a number because eventually you're going to have to start paying again. So Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they each have their own calculation. One is half a percent and one is one percent. Personally, I like to use a 1% to be more conservative. You need to be able to show what bank statements or W-2 statements to show this. So for W-2 employees, we ask for one year W-2 just to show the history. So you need two years of working history, not with the same company and student, you working as a student counts too. So if you graduated from college and now you got a $200,000 engineering job, we can use that $200,000 right away. And what about like your business owner? You don't have those clean. So if you're a business owner, typically we ask for two years of self-employed history and we look at two years of tax returns. There are times we only ask for one year of tax return when you have the business for five years or more. And then just say your debt to income is all right. Again, what are the kind of the credits for ranges that you're looking for? So when you're looking at credit score, uh, credit score is going to do two things for you. One is if you're eligible for that program or not. So some programs have a minimum of 660 credit score, 620 credit score, depends on what you're trying to qualify for. Number two is it's credit score affects the risk of your loan. And the higher the risk, the higher the interest rate or pricing for that loan. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of us get the conventional loan. So if you were to Google Fannie Mae LLPA loan level price adjustments, that's actually where you see all the price adjustments. So if you have a 740 credit score, we'll typically give you the best interest rate, 720, 700, and then 680. So it goes up and down in 20 points increment. Here at SimplePassiveCashflow.com, we work with hardworking professionals looking to opt out of investments for the clueless. I mean, mainstream investing. With so many randals out there, hollow endorsements on crowdfunding websites that just act as broker-dealers taking commission to list syndications on their website, and institutional Wall Street companies out there, who do you trust? We follow a simple formula of working with people we have a direct relationship with while enjoying higher returns and a quicker path to financial freedom. The trifecta is simple. First, syndication deals to get two passive losses to unlock other tax best practices, and thirdly, infinite banking. 
The problem that many astute Simple Passive Cash Flow Club members find is that syndications typically have a minimum of $50,000 to invest and frequency of deals is sporadic. Check out my article at simplepassivecashflow.com slash ofund to learn how I always have cash on hand using the American Homeowner Preservation Fund as part of this one-two punch to be ready for a great deal while still making an attractive return. I've been investing in AHP since 2016. AHP is a crowdfunding solution to the mortgage crisis in America, where the fund takes care of operational headaches for you and pulls money together to get bulk discounts on distressed mortgages. It's a business model that I think gets stronger should a slowdown in the economy come, because there will be even more distressed inventory for AHP to purchase. AHP's latest fund, Pre-REO, aims to keep people in their homes by investing in notes so you can make a 7% return and feel good about making a positive social impact. Invest as little as $100 by going to prereo.com slash investors. And if you want the free Burn Zone book, please claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And oh, don't forget to join our private investor club. Join us at simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. Maybe if you can help up demystify this, I still am confused when you get your rate sheet, right? Like you might have a lower rate that's competitive with other folks, but you also have to look at the fees. That's how lenders make money on loans. That's how they keep business, right? Yeah, absolutely. Man, who who doesn't want a 1.875 15-year fixed, no point, no fee, right? It's all over the billboard, but you're driving 60 miles down the freeway and you're looking at the billboard and and actually, the fine prints are so small. There's no way you can see the fine print. <laughs> but basically, you got to look at your situation is. And then you need to have someone to help you break it down where the the points of the loan, the the lender fees, and also do they have other junk fees or appraisal fees? You got to be able to put it side by side. A lot of borrowers, when they come up to me, they're like, oh, what's your APR? Like, personally... I'm not getting a credit card, so I don't really look at the APR. I actually look down into all the nitty-gritty numbers and put it side-by-side side and match it up. But it makes it hard. You go on LinkedIn, you type in the word lender, and there's like a gazillion mom and pa daisy chain lenders that may originate one or two loans a year, one for themselves, one for their mom. Their fees are all over the place. I think that's in every field, right? Not just in lending and real estate. They're real estate agents, good, bad. And engineers, they're good engineers, bad engineers. So I think in lending, you really want to be aligned with, let's think about it for a second here. You're going into contract. You, your lender, and your real estate agent. And then you three against a listing agent, the, the title officer, the escrow officer, and the seller, they're all picked by the seller. You need to be aligned with the, the best of the best. You need a really good real estate agent to pr- represent you. You need a really good lender to be protecting you as well. It's the intangibles, right? Can you close? Are they going to say what they're going to do? Or are they just going to bait it switch on the Exactly. There are lenders out there. I'm, I'm not going to say who, but you... you just got to be careful who you're aligned yourself with and you want to be aligned with someone who has a track record and have your best interests in heart. Is it similar? A lot of people do the infinite banking. In the beginning, you don't know what kind of like rates and fees you're going to get. Like you got to unfortunately get that, have that nurse come to your house, get your physical first. Is it the same thing with the lending? They've got to run your profile for a couple of weeks and then you get to that point. 
but you see the whole picture. The good part about lending is there's no blood draw or lab work. (laughs) To run your credit, to run your interest rate, we really only need four or five items, right? Your credit score, what you think your credit score is. And obviously, if you're saying you're 740, we run it at 720, that would be different in interest rate or pricing. So your credit score, how much down payment, and then are you buying a single family or condo? Is it an owner-occupied or not? And your zip code. Like those few things will basically give me enough information to run a quote for you. And that quote should be able to stick with the whole transaction throughout. Let's get to some of the problems you're seeing through transactions. Maybe we'll break it down on owner-occupied and non-owner-occupied too. But like the first one is when I was buying a lot of these rental properties, of course, I was using my own money. My parents never give me anything. Nobody gives me gifts. But some people, when they're buying their primary residence, shoot, what kind of 20-something-year-old kid can afford two, $300,000 down payment? A lot of these guys are getting it from their parents. But what's the best practices there to work that in? A lot of people, when they come to me, obviously, the, there are some gifts uh, involved. But for gift letters, for the most part, conventional loans are pretty easy. They make it really easy for us lenders and also the borrowers. I, I typically suggest there are two ways of sending money into escrow. You can have the donor write a check and deposit in the borrower's account, but you would need a lot of documentation showing how the money is deposited. We'll ask for a cancel check or check image and the transaction history. Sometimes it takes like, you know, three, four days for it to clear. So it depends on where you are in the contract. You might not have that luxury. The cleanest way I always tell people is to have the donor and wire it directly into the escrow's account. So this way there is a receipt and there's no way the money is going wrong anywhere. But for FHA loans, do know that we will ask for the sourcing of the donor's funds. So meaning I will ask for two months of bank statements from the donor. I'm trying to sharpshoot this. If I get a random check from my friend or my parents two and a half months prior to when I throw this money into escrow, does that nobody checks or there's nothing I need to write that this was my money. In the real estate industry, you know, I hear a lot of real estate agents would say, oh, you need to have two months of bank statements, clean bank statements or seasoned funds. Really, that's a myth, but it really depends on what the deposit is for. We call them large deposits. So large deposits definition is basically any deposit that's more than 50% of the total gross income used on the loan application. So let's say if you and your wife combine $10,000 gross rental and gross income on the loan application. So anything higher than $5,000 deposited into your account, we just have to know what it is and why is it deposited. We, we just wanted to make sure it's not, you're not loaning a $5,000 to go buy this house and now you have to pay it back and we need to add it to your debt to income. Or being a gift or it can't be a gift. If it's a gift, then we just need to document it, source and explain. I just got it from my BlockFi, man. Or, or crypto, deposited from Coinbase. We we can use crypto as down payment. I've got this other, like, one guy, he wasn't annoying, but the bank was being really annoying. They're like, oh, we see you're in these private placements, and we want to make sure, like, LPs don't co-sign on the debt. They're passive investors, but they're asking all these questions. Any thoughts on that other than finding a new lender? You can explain all you want, but... If you met with a, an underwriter that won't let go, sometimes it's just 
easier for you to change lenders to someone who can get that scenario ran by their underwriter. And if you get the okay, then resubmit that application over there. That's what we do as brokers. Sometimes we run into cases like that and lender A doesn't work out. So we quickly, we, we have your application. We, it's so easy for us to go, oh, go to the second lender, go to the next lender that can get this done ASAP. For you guys, this is how the industry is made, right? Like you have lending brokers and you have the people on kind of the sales side interacting with you, but there's a person in the back office. Maybe it's an, even a different company, whereas the underwriter. Now, this is where you need to have a good broker or front office person to take your story to them. Now, if you have just some bureaucratic idiot on both ends, you're going to run into all these types of problems, but you need to have somebody to sell your story the right way. See, even if you do have a bureaucratic idiot as the underwriter, you can pass all these barriers. I always tell my clients to give me the full story. I don't want to have any surprises while we're in escrow. It's, oh, oh, so you own a house with your parents and you forgot to tell us. And we always ask for the full story up front. Then we can know how to what's going to come our way and how we can prepare you when we submit your file to the underwriter. And, and Benson's a licensed loan officer, so he has no comment on this, but... I've had clients where they changed jobs the last second and they let it slip on their an email and their lending broker kind of kiboshes the loan. I had to tell my guys, well, if anything like that happens, use the phone. Yeah. We've had loans where we, we call. So a lot of people, there are a couple of times where they submitted their their pay stubs. We got into ESCO, got loan approval, and they quit. They told me that I could quit my job and my wife can quit my job, her job, so we can get real estate professional status or some other random tax scheme. Yeah, no, we actually do a final verbal verification of employment three days before you close, meaning you sign documents. A lot of lenders, they wait until that last minute because if you think about it, Hawaii or, or California, we close escrow in 21 days, 30 days. It's very typical. But when we're in the Midwest, other states, they might take 60 or 90 days to close an escrow. Heck, their appraisal process is probably two months right now. There's an appraisal shortage right now. So like in two months, who knows if you're still going to be employed. So they always do a verbal verification of employment right before you close. Sometimes Fannie Mae picks about 10% of loans to audit. So sometimes they will call after the loan is closed to see if you still work there. It's okay if you don't work there. You just don't want to make sure, they want to make sure there's no loan fraud, right? I think they're just in the back office there drinking Johnny Walker, Red Label, and trying to scoop people over at the very last second. We're talking a lot about like primary owner-occupied houses. How does this change for, you know, if you're buying a rental property? Non-owner-occupied. First of all, if you're talking about conventional owner, uh, non-owner-occupied, no gift is allowed. No gift is allowed. At least in the last two months, right? Yeah. We look at your bank statements and and it, there shouldn't be any gifts in the past two months. And if you're looking to do some DSCR loan, and for those who don't know DSCR, it's a debt service coverage ratio. Uh, it's a terminology that's often used in the apartment loan world. So they, they have it for one to four unit for people who don't want to show their tax returns. And we base it off of the income of the property that you're buying to qualify you. And a lot of those programs will allow a gift letter or uh, will allow gift. So what is the debt service coverage ratio, the magic number they're looking for? One. 
The wow. magic number is one. Okay. But you can do less than one. You just need to take a higher rate. That's actually not hard to hit. Like for the larger apartments, it's usually like 1.25. Yeah. 1.25. So commercial loans, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the multifamily home loans, they ask for 1.25. And the one to four is private investors. So they really only ask for one or even less than one, depending on the LTV. And you're talking about shopping it to different lenders. Does the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA loan always the best or... Oh, always the, I, I would say I, I like to look at FHA as a band-aid loan. So if you have some sort of history, credit history in the past, bankruptcy or, or your low credit score, FHA is going to be more forgiven because they are backed by the government and they, there's a, a huge insurance cost up front and every month. And then, and then people typically who are in an FHA loan, they're only in there for maybe five years or so, and they're going to refinance out of it into a conventional loan. That's what we typically see. And conventional loan has slightly high interest rate just because FHA has a huge mortgage insurance to hedge against the risk. Conventional still have a very low interest rate, not as low as FHA. And then after conventional, then it's going to be your DSCR, your non-QM loans. So people who can't prove tax returns income. And, and we'll get to that non-QM loan here in a future, which you on a future podcast to talk more about that. Because that's something I set selfishly and interested because I don't make too much money on my taxes. So I'm a little, I'm a little <laughs> screwed for getting loans. Yeah, and there's multiple <laughs> ways to do it. Yeah, let's, we should yeah. get together again. So you wanted to talk about the second time home buyer tactics? Because I, I think a lot of your clients are California guys. They see a lot of equity. They got a lot of debt equity and they want to put it into another asset. Yeah. I think the first question when someone come up to me and say, hey, I want to buy my next house, my next primary home. Okay, cool. What are you going to do with your first primary home? Are you planning to sell? What are you planning to do? And because of forms and whatnot, house hacking is that next big thing. A lot of people want to rent out their first primary home and buy the second house. I love giving our guys a hard time, right? Like you already got a house and you want to go buy another one. Oh, you already got your two Moderna shots or Pfizer shots. You you want to get their booster shot. Most of the world hasn't gotten any, but I don't know. I just give them a hard time just to be fun with them because I get it. We have a housing shortage. Let's just sell your first house. I get it. There's sentimental value. You want to Stay in, you want to rent out your first house, fine. But the question is now, a lot of people, they're like, oh, I don't want to pay interest. So they keep dumping money on their first house, the first mortgage, so they can have low interest. So you pay low interest on a low interest rate. Which is not what you financially want to be doing, folks. Yeah, that would be another podcast. We're in a super low rate environment. Typically, I ask people to just make minimum payment, whatever your P&I is and tuck away the rest of the money and invest it somewhere else that's growing faster than 2.875%. So people who are looking to tap into their equity to buy their next house because they want to buy their next house next year, I like to tell them to plan ahead. Don't do a cash out refi right before you're trying to buy your next primary home because when you sign your loan documents, next time when you sign your loan documents, when you're signing the deed of trust, Look at item number six. I think it's six. It's basically telling you that you're going to move in that house for a whole year within the next 60 days and move in that house for a whole year. And Fannie Mae is going to catch you 
if you're not careful and that you're not staying in that house and have you buy back the loan. So if you're planning to do that, do it today, take the cash out, put it in the bank. And so next year, you're not violating any rules. You can use that cash to go buy your next primary home. It's similar to if you get an owner-occupied house. But some people, technically this is fraud, I believe, is you can't get an owner-occupied mortgage then move out right away with the intention of doing that, right? If your employer fires you, you change jobs involuntarily. I think that's another thing. You said 12 or something like that, like 12, like you're signing up for this owner-occupied government, like I'm signing off on yeah. Because your loan is going to be sold to other investors that think this is your owner-occupied house and with a lower risk, give you a better rate. And now they're not buying, the investors not buying what they thought they're buying. They want you to buy back, buy back that investment, which is your loan. And a lot of people have success sneaking by, but with technology today, you never know, right? They have QC department, they'll check your Facebook, your LinkedIn, just to make sure you're staying in that house. they When you list it on the MLS for rental, they see it right away. They have an alert that says 123 Main Street is up for lease. And they're like, wait a minute, they buy this house as an owner occupied. People think that there's privacy and like they hide behind their Wyoming, like LLCs for supposedly. The government knows everything. Even all you guys are signing on like deals as LLC, as passive investors. The government has your social security numbers on there. They haven't figured out how to use artificial intelligence very well. If you heard about this in Benson, but like they audited like pizza chains, like the small mom and paws here. Like those guys typically stuff, they make a dollar, put in the cash register, put the other in their pocket, do that type of stuff. But they audited like the number of pizza boxes that the chain was buying. And then they look for discrepancies. You can't outsmart these guys. In in our area, Sam Wu is a really big a, a Cantonese food joint and he got caught. There's another one. Mama Lou's just recently got caught. The dumpling house. They they can sit out there and count people walking in. <laughs> yeah. Gallons of canoe oil or something like that. I don't know what they use. So this next one, house hacking. You and I are not, we're a little older these days, but at one time we we're both broke engineers and where we would do stuff like this. But now married kid, it's just not cool to have somebody live in your duplex house. But a lot of you, some of you guys, I don't know why you listen to my podcast. You guys don't have money, but you might want to buy a duplex, tripex or quad live in one side. Maybe you're weird like that. Maybe talk us through some of your clients doing this and how that works. Actually, I can talk to you like back when I first started in mortgage or even when I was a poor engineer, the goal was always to buy a three unit or four unit as my first house. I was single back then. I yeah, lived see. in a garage. But like your first house was always the, oh, you got to buy the two duplex, a three unit, four unit, and then you live in one and rent out the other three. But in California, it's just so hard right now. Do a three and a half percent down FHA loan live there for a couple of years and until you save enough to buy your second primary house, which is at that point would be an upgrade because you might be going to a duplex or condo. But you got to keep in mind when you're doing house hack is like, what is your motivation to move from house A to house B and does it make sense, right? If you already live in a million dollar house and now you want to go buy a $350,000 house to move into, just doesn't make sense. 
unless you are in a retirement age and you're ready to downsize. Your, your kids went to college and empty nester, you want to buy a smaller house? Sure. Like, I think that's when you go downsize. But for people like you and I who are, just have kids, if you own a $1 million house, you might be buying a $1.5 million house. House hack it that way. So proving of your motivation is always like the number one thing. Are you moving closer to your employer? Uh, if your employer is in San Francisco, why are you buying in Los Angeles? So in that case, if your employer allows you to work from home, you might need a letter to say they allow you to work from home and now you can buy a house near your parents in LA. I would probably argue if you're under quarter million, half a million dollars net worth or revolt by properties at cash flow, the house hacking especially in California or private market, gambling on appreciation. It, it'll probably go up. It's real estate. All the data is showing, all the historic. Yeah. How, how long are these private residence loans taking compared to the non-owner occupied these days? It's how long is the application to closing? The closing period. That if you're putting in a loan offer on a property, should you account for these days? I think we're averaging about 13 days between application to signing loan documents. On all primary home or non-owner occupied. I got a little, this question is more, I have a friend. So I have a friend that buys a rental property and there is a repair such as a HVAC is broken or there may need to be repaired the roof, right? Say, call it 10 grand of repairs on a $80,000 house. Would it be smart or could he work a deal with the seller for the seller to do that improvement, fix the roof? improve the HVAC and then increase the price. And that way the buyer can lump all those costs into the loan instead of dumping another 10 grand. Cash is king. Is this something that you can do legitimately in your loan, your closing? Or does it need to be off on the side? You can definitely do it within the closing inside the contract. If you're planning to just add it to the purchase price, you should be okay. Just make sure your appraisal comps are going to be, it's comparable. This house, 80000 going to $90,000 is going to be comparable to other homes being sold. That's $90,000. So what you cannot do is add it to, to the loan. So if your loan's already $50,000, you want to add ten grand to it, that might not work just because the LTV might be too high for the loan. But if your appraisals or you got some cushioning in your appraisals, you can a lot of this stuff in. Yeah. And as an investor or people who are listening to this podcast is probably smart enough not to do that. Add it to the house and now it's the praise value is too high and you have to come up with the difference anyway. Just to close out the summary, primary residences, remote rentals or other not owner occupied properties, anything you think that can be seen clients get hung up on in the closing process that just have people be aware. Yeah, I think one thing that I would suggest is like taxes. A lot of people, they might rent out the other unit of their property and not report that tax. I'd say go ahead and report it. I don't think it's going to do too much of a difference on as far as how much more income tax you have to pay. When it comes to applying for a loan, it's going to you know, help you in a long way, in the long run. Do you want to get your contact information out there if anybody's looking to get a loan? Yeah, man, you caught me by surprise. I would just go on Yelp and type in Nestmade Mortgage and you'll be able to see us on top. Well, N-E-S-T-M-A-D-E dot com. 
thanks Benson for joining us and uh, we'll see you next time on when I got my personal question for those business owners who can't qualify for both loans can't fit in the box all right I'll talk to you soon This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself, because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.